And if you're following in the English, on page 68, we're in the middle, towards the middle of the page, about 10 lines into the, into the page. In the middle of the line, Valpi haderech hazeh. Okay? Two, four, six, eight, ten lines in. In the middle of the line, the middle of the tenth line, Valpi haderech hazeh. Within this path, within this construct. And in English, it begins with the words within this construct. That's where we, that's where we are. We're in the middle of this discussion. And for the, <coughs> for the purposes, for the purposes of review, <coughs> for the purposes of review, uh, I'll just say briefly that what we touched upon last week was that there are two essential conducts with, with which God conducts himself in all of the affairs of the world. We referred to them last week as Hanhagas HaMishpat and Hanhagas HaYichud. Hanhagas HaMishpat is the conduct of justice which essentially says that God creates a world purposefully, not a manifestation of his capability or of his essence, but a manifestation of his will and his will being to create a world with a certain amount of provisional imperfections, the intention being that man should be challenged to grow, to overcome those imperfections in, in himself, and to grow and to become meritorious of the, of the growth that he himself was challenged to. And with that comes all of the possibilities to do right and to do wrong to their greatest extremes and also with it comes the entire system of God responding to man reward and punishment and everything that's entailed in that kind of a conduct that's Hanhagas HaMishpat and essentially the Hanhagas HaMishpat the conduct of justice is the primary conduct which God decided to be the established conduct for the world and is, of the two conducts, the more apparent one that, that exists in this world. Now, that isn't to say that we always see the justification of a reward and punishment system, but what it does say is that the Hanhagas HaMishpat, the conduct of justice, is what allows for total freedom of choice and total freedom of choice opens up virtually every option of activity and behavior and that I think that we can say we witness in the world around us every option of behavior we are either knowledgeable of or or have, has come to pass in this world and that part of Hanhagas HaMishpat we're definitely familiar with we don't necessarily always see God's immediate involvement or God's immediate response or the response that we, can, that we can comprehend is in measure for the behavior of man, but that's all part of that conduct of justice. And we're going to learn this evening from where we're going to start on page 68 exactly all of the conditions that are present when the world is running on that conduct. The conduct of freedom of choice, God responding to man's, man's actions, and the reward and punishment system. We're going to see all of the implications of that conduct. They will be vividly described. On the other hand, there is a second conduct 
with which God conducts his world, which is under normal circumstances a more hidden conduct, an important conduct, but a hidden conduct, and that conduct is referred to as Hanhagas Hayichud, the conduct that leads and is determined to make sure that the world from moment to moment and from day to day is slowly moving in a direction of the goal of which the world was created for. Now, God plays a very delicate game of not making sure that though He is intervening and making sure that the con- this conduct moves ahead the goals of the world, they never collide with the freedom of choice that man has. Under normal circumstances, they will not collide. God will not say, being that I have a goal to accomplish, at this point in time, I will take away man's freedom of choice. That God won't do. Under normal circumstances, this will not happen. So these are two conducts, one more apparent, one one hidden. They run concurrently with each other, they do not collide with each other. And last week we explained that it's only God that can ensure that they don't collide. And the reason why on a philosophical level they don't collide is because they both come out of God's commitment of love for mankind. And then the question only remains, what's the particular process to use? Is the process the conduct of justice? Will the process be, will the goal be mo- better served with the conduct of justice? Will the, will the goal better be served with the conduct of yichud? But they both exist, they both run together. Sometimes the conduct of justice is the primary and the conduct of oneness is the secondary, and sometimes it's vice versa. Sometimes it's the opposite way around. And I'm really not going to go into vivid details of everything that we did last week. This is only for the sake of review. Those of you that are here for the first time cannot be expected to understand what on earth I was just saying. But that's just as a review for those that were here last week so that we should be able to continue from that point. But essentially, these are the two conducts that we discussed last week. And now we're going to learn all of the particulars of both of these conducts. And everybody that's here for the first time will be able to pick up from the particular details that the author offers us, what are the what is the extent of these conducts? What is the what is the scope of these conducts? Okay. <clears throat> so let's begin. Let's go inside. Let's at least try to start with the text. Uh, on page sixty-eight, the tenth line in. There are many more copies here. If anybody would like them. Va'alpi haderech hazeh, with the with the construct of of the conduct of justice, nimtza habrios miskalkalos lepa'amim veniskenais lepa'amim, the conduct of justice which allows total freedom of choice on man's part, uh, creates a situation within which. Sometimes the, the created world spoils things and sometimes they correct things. Right? That's, one, what, that's one symptom of the conduct of justice. Being with the conduct of ju- justice, everything is based on deserving and deserving is based on you making the choice by yourself through your own choice. So therefore, 
What the first, we'll go through them, we'll give a list of them. The first symptom, or the first implication better, of the conduct of justice is that sometimes the created world spoils things and sometimes they correct things by what they do. V'nitna harishus l'satan What? I'm running too fast. The Rav Chaim Litzata says sometimes we spoil things and sometimes we build things. We correct things. Now this is a very interesting statement because man would want to believe that what he does is not significant enough to spoil anything and certainly not significant enough to correct or to build something in his world. And even if we were to argue one of those two points, we would be more willing to assume that we know how to spoil things and we would be less willing to believe in ourselves that we can be make tikkunim, that we can correct things. But the truth of the matter is that anything that is a product of choice of man on any level that man is choosing right, has an effect. It has an effect. A person who is challenged on his particular level for whatever reason, should I rob the person blind or shouldn't I rob the person blind and decides that it's not right to do and doesn't rob the person blind what is the effect of that decision so many of you would most probably argue a big thank you this person deserves he decided that he's not going to he's not going to rob somebody he's a, a big hot shot big deal but that's not that's not so the truth of the matter is that though what this per- particular person is wrangling with is a very, a very low kind of behavior, should I or should I not rob the person blind, but the fact that for him it is a challenge, and he has to work it through, and he has to come up with a decision and a discipline and a control not to rob the person blind, a tikkun is accomplished not only for himself, a correction, a building, a contribution has not only been accomplished for himself, but he has created a positive, a positive accomplishment and a positive connection of this world towards God by virtue of that decision. Now, in other words, people could sometimes think, if I'm making a decision about giving $10,000 to a yeshiva, or if I'm making a decision, should I or should I not become the director of an orphanage, or should I or should I not do, you know, the big things in life. So those kinds of decisions, if I go and make a positive decision, so those things create tikkunim. Those things create positive, they make positive contributions for the world and they build the world. But if I am in the, in the midst of wallowing in these seemingly inferior um, enticements of robbing people blind or who knows what else, and I happen to make the right decision, good for you. That's one step in your growth. But a tikkun in terms of the world, in terms of making a contribution to the totality of the world, you haven't done anything yet. This is not true. There isn't a thing that a person does that if it is for that person a particular challenge and the person addresses the challenge and makes the correct decision that there is a form of tikkun, there's a level of tikkun that's accomplished. Now this isn't to say that the level of tikkun for every decision is the same. There are some decisions that we make that the level of tikkun 
is very great. The level of building the world is very great. There are certain decisions that we make that the level of tikkun isn't so great. But I might say that one of the criteria to measure the extent of tikkun is how hard was it to make the decision that you made. In other words, if you made a correct decision, and for you it was an intense challenge, and you overcame the intense challenge of doing the wrong thing and did the right thing, the extent of tikkun is very much measured by the intensity of the challenge. And in that sense, you can have two people uh, accomplishing the same challenge, and the extent of the tikkun that each one is making is totally different. For the person that it was a, a minimal challenge, his tikkun can be much smaller. For the person that it was a greater challenge, his tikkun is much greater. So it can be the identical action, and for one person it's building worlds, and for the other person, yes, it's also making a positive impact, but not the same positive impact. But the important thing to realize, I'll take the question in a moment, but the important thing to realize is that there is virtually nothing that that is significant in the intensity of choice of man that doesn't have an impact. If 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 it has any if it moves the person into into challenge, into making a choice, into doing or not doing something by the fact that man is is in that challenge and man is connected to the entire universe in many, many different ways, there's an impact. Now, I would like to share with you, I would like to share with you one particular idea that's related to this concept of tikkun, and then I'll take the question. Hasidic masters, in particular the Avnei Nezer, the Svasemes, the Sakachava Rebbe, the Geri Rebbe, and others as well, speak on this theme at great length. And they say the following thing. They say that uh, people that are spiritually oriented and motivated look for something which we really don't know what the definition of it is, but they're looking for, quote-unquote, closeness to God and holiness. Right? Whatever those two things mean. Closeness to God it doesn't mean in terms of physical space. It means something else. Holiness is altogether something which is very, very hard to define. But what we know about it is that both closeness and holiness is a wholesome state. It is a state where man feels a sense of being encompassed and engulfed with, with God and feels happiness and pleasure in that, in that being engulfed. And it is a, it's a, it's a very gripping kind of a state of being, and a very meaningful state of being. That's what we know without going into any particular definitions. It's a great state. It's an exalted state. And many of us believe that we are nowhere near the, this, this pursuit of closeness to God, and certainly not the holiness concept, as long as we're still involved in the fleshy issues of challenge. In other words, a person that's uh, dealing with, with basic issues, for instance, basic issues of morality, the feeling that most people have is, is if I'm struggling with basic issues of morality, holiness is a postgraduate course for me. 
I'm, I'm in the first grade right now. I'm dealing with ba- issues of basic morality. I'm dealing with basic issues of human behavior. When I get my uh, act straight and I'm a mensch in these areas, then we can go on to this to this pursuit, this postgraduate pursuit, this extracurricular pursuit, which is very meaningful to me. For some, the, the, the categorizing, the pursuit of closeness to God and the, uh, and the holiness that we, we desire being encompassed with this wholesome feel- feeling and this fulfilling feeling and this happy feeling is, is so attractive to us that we believe that everything else is not important and that we can leave that to do on a rainy Sunday and that what I should really jump into is all of my neshama that's getting me in this direction of holiness and closeness to God. So I'll meditate, I'll get involved in Kabbalah, I'll get involved in spirituality and what do I do with my temper and what do I do with all of my other deficiencies? I'll leave that for another time. Those, those are the little things in life. Those are the kleinikite, and those, 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 those are the things that unfortunately are there, and we have to spend time, but we'll try to figure out a time when we're not doing anything else to take care of those things. But we've broken it up that way. Now, the Hasidic masters say that we've made a terrible error in these two premises. The Hasidic masters say the following principle. And they all say it in different ways, but they say it in one way. They say the following thing. Closeness to God and holiness is accomplished by bricha min hatuma, which means, translated into English, a person's... And I'm going to say that... I'm going to translate the words literally, and then I'll tell you why I translated them literally. Fleeing from impurity, fleeing from the unwholesome states running away from the unwholesome states. Now, what does this all mean? What does this all mean? Essentially, what this all means is the following. That the fact that that man recognizes that there are certain states, that there are certain behaviors, and there are certain values and goals, which are very, very negative, and I don't want them, and I look at them as, as, as dangerous things, and, and the same way that I don't want to take something that I'm afraid is spoiled because I don't want to hurt myself. Right? If I look at the negative things in the same sense that I don't want to hurt myself and I don't want to hurt my relationship with God and therefore I will stay away from these things because I don't want to get hurt, that's the attitude that touches God and says that this person cares about the relationship and because he cares about the relationship God says because you're running away from the detrimental and you don't want the detrimental not only will I help you stay away from the detrimental but I will give you in its place the fulfilling so Kedusha is accomplished holiness is accomplished by dealing with the basic issues of morality dealing with what we think seem to be, you know, the things that spend the rainy Sunday when you're not doing anything else, spend your Sundays doing those kinds of things. It's particularly those things that make the greatest levels of growth. You know, we talk about the fact that, that when the Jew left Egypt, he had fallen into 49 gates of impurity. 
And in the seven weeks from the time that he left Mitzrayim to, to the giving of Torah, he ascended to the 49 levels of holiness. And even part of the 50th, but not the complete 50th, because then they would have just turned into angels. So a common question that people ask is, how many steps did they climb? Right? Most people feel that they climbed 98 steps, 49 steps to get out of the cellar, to get out of the dungeons of impurity, and then another 49 steps they climbed to ascend the ladder to that ivory tower of holiness. And what the Hasidic masters say is no. Every time that they ascended one step out of Tumah, they were taking a step on the ladder of Kedusha. In other words, there's the parallel. There's the parallel. So precisely when they tore themselves away from each level of something that was not wholesome, they had gained in its, in its parallel the opposite. So the idea that we have to take into the challenges that we have against negative things isn't that we're going from minus 49 to zero and then after we've really schwitzed, after we've really perspired getting to zero, we're only by zero. We only got from minus 49 to zero. It's not like that. The extent that a person grows in each and every uh, subtraction of a minus is a plus. Now, we know that to be true in mathematics. A minus, a minus number becomes a plus. Right? So a minus, a minus of that negative thing, whatever it is, becomes a plus. Right? There's a lot to talk about because what are the parallels in terms of the extent of Tum and the extent of Kedusha, but I'm not going to get into that this evening. In other words, the 49th, which is the deepest level of impurity, when I pull myself away from that, which one do I get in Kedusha? This is a very involved thing, which I'm, is really not for the discussion this evening. But this is what, this is what Rav Moshe Chaim Litzat is saying here. In the conduct of justice, in the conduct of justice, pa'amim, sometimes people spoil things, and sometimes people correct things. But each time it's one of the one of the one or the other. It's one or the other each time. It's not as if there's certain things that are just blank, neutral. Each thing is in a in a, in a sense Now I'm gonna jump. Okay, I'm going to jump a whole bunch of spiritual levels, and I want to talk. Ab- I want to touch on one thing, and then I'll take your question. I didn't forget about the question, but I want to touch on one thing. I said that every action is a tikkun or a kilkul. Now, most people, when they hear that kind of a statement, that each action is either a, a building factor or a, or a destructive factor or a spoiling factor, feel that this is this is spiritually very claustrophobic. You know, you're not. Why does everything have to mean so much? You know, I can't do something and just, you know, and just, you know, just be myself. Just, just be, you know. Why can't there be things that are neutral, things that are plain? Why is it all, as it's put to me, so black and white? Right. So let me explain this a little bit, and let me put it in, in into an attitude, which I think is very, which is. I think very helpful. In Kabbalistic literature, there's, there's, um, 
there's a whole concept of klipas noga. There's a whole concept of, I'll explain that to the extent that I understand it. Um, there's a whole concept of, of a spirit that the human being possesses that quote unquote is neutral. It's noga. It's not rooted in tumma. It's not rooted in, 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 in impurity. It's not a dramatic thrusting impure force. On the other hand, it is not a demanding thrusting and compelling holy force either. There is a spirit, there is even a chalik of our neshama, sheba miklipas noga. The Balatanya at the very beginning of his sefer talks about a level of neshama that we possess that's klipas noga, that comes from this source of noga. Then there is another neshama which we possess, another level of soul, which is elokus which is total godliness. Now, what is this Noga all about? What this Noga is all about is essentially it is a level of spirit that is connected to the physical world and stands to be elevated or stands to be mischanneled. In other words, in and of itself, in and of itself, it is standing without any character or personality. It's neutral. But what man does, in other words, the motivation that man attaches to his involvement with that, then defines it to become elevated or to, to be regressed. In other words, let me give you an example. Foods, for instance, foods which are kosher foods, they're not holy foods, they're kosher foods. You're allowed to eat them. There is a concept of holy food when we had sacrifices and so on certain things that were ties, certain things that the Kohanim ate. But under normal circumstances, our food is of this neutral characteristic. Now, when I go over to this food, and I eat this food because I like the way it slivers its way down my gullet, and that's the reason why I'm eating it, so essentially what I've attached to this particular food is a very materialistic goal, unrelated to anything of real eternal value. So what I've essentially done is I have doomed this piece of material to a temporary state and temporary level because I've taken it and I've made the temporal out of it because the motivation by which I became involved with it makes it that kind of a thing. That's the nature of the things that fall in the category of Noga. On the other hand, if I take this food and I say that I'm going to eat it because on Shabbos a person is supposed to have pleasure and be happy and enjoy the Shabbos and one of the ways of enjoying Shabbos is in the Suda of Shabbos or I eat it because I want to be healthy and I want to be strong because I have things that are important to do in life so then I've taken this food and I've elevated I've elevated it. Now, so essentially what I'm saying, I'll take questions, let me just finish this concept and then I'll take questions. So now, essentially what I'm saying is then that actions are not only defined by right and wrong, but very often actions are defined in terms of their tikkun value or kilkel value, they are defined by the motivation or the ultimate goal that I attach to the thing. Now, because... And it's very logical that motivation and ultimate goal should make a difference. 
because after everything is said and done, our motivations, our ultimate goals come from the depths of who we are. They come from the most dynamic part of what we are. So it would be logical to assume that if I eat something physically, it would make a difference. If it's, for instance, not, not kosher. So if I'm eating something which is neutral, but my heart's in it, my mind's in it, that it should also make a difference. Because I have an involvement in it that it comes from the most dramatic part of who I am as a human being. This is also one of the reasons why every single thing that a person does is pa'amim niskanais, pa'amim miskalkalais. Everything that a person does, either by virtue of it being a correct or incorrect action, or by virtue of it being a correct action, but ill-motivated, or properly motivated, properly motivated, also creates a tikkun or a kilkul. Creates one or the other. Right? So that's the sense. This is why the Gemara says that under certain circumstances, and this should not be used, there are only very unique circumstances where this is true. But the Gemara says, that it's sometimes possible for a person to do something which is essentially the act itself is not correct, but he's doing it with real holy motivation, and he believes that it's the correct thing to do, and sometimes that creates a greater tikkun than doing something which is correct and doing it with negative motivations. So motivation and intent has a lot to do with the extent with the extent of tikkun or kilkul that's involved as well. Now, coming back to the issue of the spiritually claustrophobic. Right. Let, me, let me try to address that issue for a moment. Right. And let me try to develop um, uh, an attitude here. Each and every one of us that's involved on some level of, 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 of spirituality and has invested some degree of hope and aspiration in terms of spiritual growth <laughs> has greater or lesser measures of frustration with self because they feel so conflicted. The very expression, I feel spiritually claustrophobic, is, is, a, is a symptom of that. In other words, let's say the Jew, I'll give you an example, let's say a Jew is really striving to reach a level, right? and he seems to always get involved in something which seemingly he's still dealing with the minus numbers, he's nowhere in the plus numbers, he's still dealing with the junk. So I'm, I'm, I'm saying this evening that everything that we deal with, even what we believe is still the junk, is also significant. But let's say a person feels, I, I'm going towards a, a certain goal, which is a very meaningful goal, but I always get bogged down in some kind of nonsense that doesn't get me anywhere near it. It doesn't get me anywhere near it. And I feel very conflicted. What can I do to try to get this stuff out, that I shouldn't feel so conflicted, that I shouldn't feel so torn, that I shouldn't be pulled down from an exalted goal. You know, people dream spiritually, and dreaming spiritually is considered a very positive thing. Right? But as great as spiritual dreams are, so too is the pain of the reality after we come out of the dream. And we would only want 
not to have to confront the tremendous difference between the dream and the reality and the pain. What can we do that would take away some of the pain between the dream and the reality? One of the things, one of the elements that can help us is this issue of realizing that no activity is neutral. Now let me explain. Let me explain what I mean by this. A person that walks into a restaurant, and please excuse me for being simple and coarse, right? but it brings the point across. A person walks into a restaurant, sits down, and orders a 10-course dinner with double portions of each, and really, by the time the dinner is over, has trouble moving out of his seat. He can't pick himself up. You know, it's it, it's really hard uh, to get up, and you know, and when you're so full, you get drowsy, and you manage to push yourself out of the restaurant door, and you know, you're like a stuffed animal that has to go and sleep it off for a few hours. Now, essentially, what I'm saying is the following thing: when a person goes into the restaurant, this has nothing to do with the, the food's glot kosher. And you made brachas with kavana, and you benched every word and everything, but you stuffed yourself silly. After you're finished with this, it is highly doubtful that you are going to become a participant to a very spiritual activity. Because even though you ate kosher, you did a big mitzvah. You ate three glat kosher rib steaks. I did three mitzvahs. I ate three glat kosher rib steaks. It is very doubtful that you're going to become involved in something spiritual. Why? Because even though the food was kosher, but being that the... And don't believe uh, my motivation was so that I should be healthy and strong so that I should be able to... It's nonsense. There's some things that all of the motivations in the world, if we become physically indulgent, you can motivate from today till tomorrow. You're physically indulgent and therefore you gravitate physically. Now, have I done anything wrong? No. But the activity of that restaurant is an activity that takes me away from my ultimate goal. And now, all of a sudden, after he's three quarters digested his food, he wants to do a mitzvah, and he gets involved in something that doesn't let him do the mitzvah. And he gets so frustrated, I wanted so much to do it and everything else, and why couldn't I do it, and why didn't... It doesn't work that way. In other words... A person has to make a statement. Where am I going? And then, knowing where he's going, he has to try to the best of his ability to ask himself, not if the action is right or wrong. Of course we have to ask that. But beyond asking the question of right and wrong, am I connected to the action, even if it's a correct action, am I connected to it in a positive way, in a way that is a positive motivation? If I'm not connected to it in a positive motivation, while this particular act was mutar, the next one will be usr. And if it won't be, the next one will be a prohibited one. Down the line, it will, you will get to the one that's not permitted. So the nature, in other words, acts are, are right and wrong. But the question isn't only right or wrong. The question is, even if it's right, where is it leading me? Where is it leading me doesn't only have to do if it's technically right or wrong. 
It also has to do with the motivation and the connection that goes behind it. So, to the argument that I want that some of my actions should be neutral and that I shouldn't have to attach motivations to it and stop killjoying me, my enjoyment, just as long as it's kosher, what else do you want from me? The answer to that is, you're right. You haven't done anything technically wrong and you can't be reprimanded and you can't be corrected. But the question is, if, if you identify it with, an, with empty motivation, it has its effect. Every act has its effect. It has a feeling to it. It, has had, it leaves a mark. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, even though this is correct, and quote-unquote, I would like my freedom, maybe the freedom that I want here to have something neutral is really not neutral and is not really freedom because it's going to make me gravitate in a way that will slowly get me to something which is not correct at all. So therefore, when we talk about being spiritually claustrophobic and just if it's right, leave me alone, it's good enough that I'm doing the correct thing, technically it's true. And people that are struggling with rights and wrongs should deal with that first and shouldn't deal with the next step. But after we've conquered the right and the wrong of a certain behavior, there is a tremendous freedom in starting to deal with the motivation behind the correct behavior too. Because the motivation also creates tikkun or kilkul. Not necessarily immediately measurable, but in the long run, every act either by its right or wrong or by its motivation has an effect. It has it it, it, it makes its mark. Alright, let me let me take questions on everything that I said up to this point. I saw there were a lot of hands that were surging upwards. Bernie. Um, this okay. I'm repeating the question for the sake of the tape and for the sake of, of everybody to hear it. Um, the issue of kilkul and tikkun that we are discussing here on every level of a decision, is this for the individual or for the world? And the answer is, it's for both. It's a level of tikkun and kilkul for ourselves, and it is also a level of tikkun or kilkul for the entire universe. The fact that there's a person in Mozambique that decides that he's going to do something that is morally correct is going to benefit in ways that we don't necessarily have to measure but will benefit a Jew sitting in Brooklyn, New York. Why? Because the fact that an individual... See, this entire universe is connected to God by as many bridges as people build. And every person is a builder of a bridge or the demolition squad of a bridge. But every person has the ability to build a bridge. The more bridges that are created between man and the world and God, it's to the benefit of the whole world. In other words, an individual builds a bridge, but a lot of traffic can now cross from one point to the other point. And in this sense, when man creates a tikkun, he's building a bridge. Once the bridge is connected, in mystical literature, it's talked about in the sense of a channel, not a bridge. A channel is opened. Once a channel is opened, all those that are at the end of the channel will benefit even if they didn't necessarily build a channel. But the fact that there is another connection between 
man and God benefits all those that are at the, at the other end of the channel. God is at one end of the channel and man is at the other end of the channel. So it, when we talk about tikkun or kilkul, this is something which is true for the individual and for the whole olam, for the whole world. There's, there, there's a tremendous beauty in that, but there's a tremendous responsibility in that as well. It's one of those bittersweet combinations that carries both with it. I believe there was a question back there. It was answered. All right, that sometimes happens. Are there any other questions with this? So that means that every individual action of ours is counted for benefit? I will repeat the question. I'll repeat the question. Go ahead. For benefit or for loss? Right. Okay, another, the question was, this means, what I'm saying, and it is a little bit unbelievable, that every single individual's actions either uh, become counted as a benefit or a loss. This is very true. This is why, by the way, if you recall what we were talking about last week, we said that if God would only conduct himself with his world in the conduct of justice, this world would not be guaranteed to get to its ultimate goal. Now, some of you might have been questioning that last week because some schmo makes a wrong decision. This world won't get to where it's going. What does the, the, the ill decisions of, 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 of people have to do with that, that grandiose goal of God for the world? But the answer is that that is what is meant when it says at the beginning of Genesis that God created man in his image which means that just like God created a world, man is a creator within that world. Every man is a creator in that world. And therefore, what we do, positively or negatively, does have a mark on the world. And therefore, were it only to be that the world would be ruled by our choices and not by an intervention to get to this ultimate goal, we could deter we could hold back the world from where it's supposed to be going. I, it's really not, I'm really not saying this. I must tell you that this is a Gemara. The Gemara says it in Rosh Hashanah and Maimonides codifies it in the laws of Tshuva. Maimonides says that a person, when it comes to Rosh Hashanah, should at least see himself as a scale of positives and negatives positives and negatives and the scale is equal on both sides and that if I make an extra push to do one right thing I will be tilting my scale to be granted spiritual vibrancy in life for another year I should see at least that it's an equal basis most of us are not arrogant enough to believe that we're equal but even if we were to believe that we're equal we should move ahead with uh, motivation to do good because who knows if that one thing that I'll do could tip the scale. That's one thing that the Gemara says and Maimonides says. And then Maimonides says, and furthermore, a person should think that the world is in a scale that is, is 50% meritorious and 50% not meritorious. And the one thing that I can do will not only tip my scale, but can tip the scale of what God decides for the world. 
This is based on the Gemara and Rosh Hashanah, and Maimonides codifies it. So really, the attitude of what we're talking about, that every action is significant, both for the individual and for the world as a whole, is really expressed very eloquently in this piece of Gemara, it's the Talmud Rosh Hashanah, and Maimonides codifies this in the Laws of Tshuva, that this is the approach, this really goes back to DT21. This goes back to the shear that we had the second week in August when we were talking about the significance of actions. This should be the part two of that. The, that every single action, even the things that we believe are small things, are not small things. Yes? example that you're giving is an interesting example. We didn't get to that part in the text yet. When we do get to that part in the text, I'll, 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 I'll discuss the, the parallels that you made and what the, what the author is, is trying to address there. But I hear the parallel that you're making. Um, it's in the context of Lazaro saying he's, he, I'll, I'll explain that he, he's, he's really discussing another issue there, which I'll talk about. But I understand the parallel that you're making. And th- though it's, I don't think it's necessarily the intent of the author in those words, it's a good parallel nonetheless. Yes? Okay. Okay. Um, maybe I wasn't clear about it. What, let, let me clarify what I'm saying. Maimonides definitely wasn't making a statement for generations that the world is 50% plus and 50% minus. And I would quite agree with you that, uh, that very often it is not 50-50. That's not the point of Maimonides. The point of Maimonides is the following. The point of Maimonides is, and listen carefully because this is also a very, very important concept. We do not have a way of measuring the scale. 
the fact that a person gets up one day and does ten mitzvahs and does ten averos and goes to sleep with the picture of Maimonides on the 50-50 today. This is wrong. This is wrong. Because we don't know the weight and the measure of any mitzvah and for that matter the weight and measure of any avera. The reasons for this are numerous. One of them is because we don't know the extent of impact of any mitzvah or any avera onto itself. We also don't know how to measure the motivation that went behind the mitzvah, the motivation that went behind the avera. Number two. Number three, we don't know how to measure the environment and all other factors that drove me or didn't drive me to do the positive or the negative. And therefore, Maimonides says in the laws of tshuva that it is impossible for man to even know what's on the scale. It's impossible. It's impossible. I can do a thousand averis and one mitzvah and I could be 50-50 or 80-20 into the positive. There's no way of knowing these things. There's only one person that knows this. And this is God. Kael Deis Hashem, Maimonides says, God is the one that knows the true value of these things. Now, being that that is so, though to us it might appear that the situation is horribly lopsided, we don't know. We don't know. We never know. We never know. Now that doesn't mean to say that doesn't mean to say that Maimonides is saying with any kind of definity that Maimonides is saying with any kind of definity, yes, it's unequivocally 50-50. Maimonides wouldn't say that because Maimonides himself says that we don't know how to, how to measure the scale. But essentially what Maimonides is trying to impress upon us is if it would be 50-50 for ourselves or if it would be 50-50 for the entire world, do you, could you comprehend the extent of significance of one act? One act can tip the scale. So it's much more than one act. It's tipping a whole scale. It's making a whole different situation. In other words, what Maimonides is trying to say is not a definitive statement that it is 50-50. But what Maimonides is trying to say is that one single act can tip a scale. And tipping a scale can be the difference. It can be the difference. It's seemingly a minute act, but it can be a it can be making a dramatic difference. So what Maimonides is trying to impress upon us is not a factual statement of 50-50. We don't know what it is. We never know what it is, not for ourselves and not for the world. We don't know what it is. But what Maimonides is saying is, but the possibility exists that one act can be making the difference, either for ourselves or, for that matter, in our connection to the world, to the entire world. That's what Maimonides is trying to say. But you're perfectly right that it's not a statement, this world is 50-50. Right? It's not like that. <clears throat> okay, let's go a little bit further. So this is one thing that comes out of the conduct of justice. Now, mind you, with the conduct of God's oneness, the conduct where God intervenes and does things that are not because of the deserving of man, this doesn't exist. The whole concept that every single thing that we do has an impact is part of the beauty and the responsibility of this conduct of justice. This is a dynamic contribution of man. 
When God moves in... In other words, some people would think the following. Let me give you an example. Some people would think the following. You know, who needs that this world should, should, uh, should be working with the conduct of justice? I would much prefer God take over. <laughs> straighten it out. You know how to do it much better than me. Stra- straighten, straighten. I, I give it back to you, God. You take care of it. I'm not, a, you know, I'm only, ma- I'm only human and you're God. You're much more capable than me. Shouldn't the job be given to the most capable? Now, I'm saying it again very simplistically, but we have a certain feeling like this. Like, why, why were we dumped with this? And in response to that question, while I'm not answering the question fully, in response to that question, I'd like to contribute to this attitude. Were we to hand over the reins to God, the, the, di- the dynamic contribution that man could make would be go straight out the window. There would be no impact. There would no. There would be no repercussion. There would be no energy and juice going through the things that we would be doing. We would be robots. In other words, this whole concept of being creators, this whole concept be with with being with being thrilled and exhilarated, and at the same time also the ability to do the opposite. This all exists because God says it's in your it's in your 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 guiding the ship. If we were, so to speak, to give the reins over to God, if we would give the reins over to God, we would lose that tremendous humanity that we have, that creativity that that we would have. Okay, let's go on to the next. V'netna harishos l'satan l'hastin u'lamashkes l'chabel And being that there's total freedom... There will then be contradictions in our behaviors and contradictions to our uh, our true essence, and that's what the concept of a satan is. A prosecution is somebody that brings up an issue of contradiction. When somebody comes and is trying to prosecute you, he's work he's working against you. Ultimately, what he's saying over here is not so much that there's a prosecutor. But the fact that we have so much freedom means that we have the ability to put ourselves into prosecution, that we hurt ourselves, that we contradict ourselves, and therefore also, and we create our own punishments, and we create our own hurts. Now this goes into a discussion about the concept that ultimately all punishment is self-inflicted. In other words, when we talk about the concept of punishment, where a person does something negative, and then, quote-unquote, God punishes him, the way we see it is that God could either respond or not respond, and God decides, I'm going to straighten this guy out. That is an incorrect perception of what punishment is all about. Ultimately, what punishment is all about is the following. God created the world and programmed the world to thrive, by virtue of good behavior. That's the program of the world. The same way that God created a stomach that thrives when you put healthy food into it and destroys itself when you put junk into it, God created the world with a similar digestive program that if positive things go on, the world thrives. And if uh, and things that are not positive go on, it hurts the world. That's the program of the world. Why? 
It has a lot to do with the fact that the world is in direct connection to God and a manifestation of God. And therefore, by the very fact that it's a direct connection, a manifestation of God, it operates very compatible to its creator. So when positive things go on, it thrives. When negative things go on, it's like throwing junk into a system, sand into an engine instead of gas. So obviously you ruin the engine. So therefore, and the concept of punishment along this line, though we don't understand exactly how it is, is very much related to this. That when we do negative things, all of our physical being is connected spiritually. And when we use the physical in negative ways, it's like throwing sand into an engine in a spiritual sense. So we are hurting ourselves. We look at it as if God is imposing an external punishment. But the truth of the matter is that it comes from God to the extent that God programmed the world to thrive in good. In that extent, it's coming from God. But essentially, it's an inherent, it's an inherent resistance and revolt of the world to being being subjugated to taking in garbage. Yes. You don't always see the punishment, or you see the rush, you see the rush of the evil person thriving and not seeing punishment. Okay, we'll get to that. The question was that we don't always see the the correlation of of the system revolting against the negative. It's an excellent question, and we're going to get to it. Does the punishment always go with the sin that was committed, or could the punishment? Not or could the punishment finish the question? <laughs> I can't say it. In other words. Okay. Okay. Now, like this the is. Same crime always has the same punishment. No. No. Okay. Does it fit the crime? Yes. Does it have the same punishment? No. And let me explain both answers. Based on the premise, based on the premise that it's a system that's revolting because it's you're putting something into the program that's negative to the program. The, the, the extent of its revolt is in direct measure to the extent that it is opposite of the program. In other words, if, if the punishment is an externally imposed thing, so then one could ask the question more logically, though not concretely, but more logically, who says that an externally imposed punishment is in, in exact measure? But being but being that what? Being that it is ex- essentially the program revolting against sand in the engine, so you, ca- you can't start arguing, well, it's not the appropriate punishment. A person swallows a quart of, po- of poison and then has tremendous tr- stomach cramps. And he turns to God and says, you know something? It really doesn't fit the crime. I mean, that's nonsense. What do you mean it doesn't fit the crime? The, 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 the stomach was created in a certain way. You're taking poison and putting it in. And the way the stomach was created, it's precisely to the extent of the way it was created that it will revolt against something which is negative to it. So, to the contrary, being that the concept of punishment is really an internal response, an inherent response to what's going on, there's more reason to believe. There's more reason to believe that it's precise. But is the punishment always the same? The answer to that question, it happens to be an excellent question, the answer to that is no. And the reason is very simple. Or the reasons are very simple. Because, because no person that does the behavior, even one person himself, no behavior is necessarily equal to another behavior. 
Let me give you an example. Let's say a person, I'll give you an example, and I don't mean to insinuate anything here. I'm just being simple and coarse again. Let's say a person came to the shir tonight, learned that every single thing that we do is very important, right, and really felt that they understood it and really felt connected to it, and then ten minutes after the shear is over, went ahead and did something which was negative with the attitude, what the heck, it really doesn't make a difference anyway. Right? Take that scene, and then take the scene of a person that didn't come tonight, right? and instead of coming, was doing something negative, what the heck, it doesn't make a difference anyway. Now, it's the same activity, but one is doing it with knowledge, one is doing it without a piece of knowledge. One might be doing it after a hard day at work. Another person might be doing it after a wonderful day at work. Right? So, it, the, in other words, the, the response is not the same because the extent of what I do is never the same or is not necessarily always the same. So two people can do something negative and the response will be different because the quality of the behavior is different. And I dare say that even in one person, the quality of the behavior. I'll give you an example. This is a, a point which, which, which is uh, somewhat controversial. It's hard for people to, to grasp it. Let's say a person does something. He, uh, he's, he's really wrangling, should I do it, shouldn't I do it, should I do it, shouldn't I do it, and then he finally says, I'm going to do it, even though it's negative. Right? So he does it once. And then the second time he also has the struggle, but it's not quite the same struggle. And then he does it 15, 20 times. Now, in a certain sense, okay, and weigh those words heavily, in a certain sense, God will not punish the person. In a certain sense, God will not punish the person for the 20th time that he did it the same way that he punishes the person for, let's say, the first three or four times. Why? Because by the time the person comes around to the 20th time, he is, he is almost habitually addicted to the behavior. And therefore, the extent of neshama that goes into the 20th time is far less than what went into the first few times that he did it. Now, there is a, a flip side to this. The flip side to this is that the first few times that I did it, because I felt guilty about it, I didn't really do it with a lot of zest, because there was a side of me that said, don't do it. And by the time that I get around to the tenth time, I'm really enjoying myself. So there's a flip side as well. Who can know? Who can measure these things? It's impossible to measure these things. This is only God can measure these things. But it's for these reasons, because there are so many variables, that the response is not always identical. Now, why the response doesn't always come immediately, and we see uh, wicked people thriving and so on, he's going to deal with this uh, very soon. <coughs> Let's continue. <coughs> the Nimtso, so we have, two, we have three phenomena so far from the conduct of justice. Is your hand up? Could I ask you just to repeat the question? If, um, 
Yes, Hashem is going to correct the the problems that they're not the problems, but the evils that man that man does. That's not fine. How is man going to reach the ultimate good as Hashem set up the world to be so that man can do it on eventually with Hashem's help, mostly by himself, in other words, mostly by his own. Okay. I think I know what you're asking, so I'll answer it. And if I didn't answer it, you'll 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 tell me. The question essentially is that if God wants that man should be become meritorious through his own challenges and through his own struggles, and here we have an intricate system by which God responds to man and and corrects the negative behaviors of man, aren't these two things in contradiction? On the one hand, we say that man has free. What? If he correct them later on, so then it's not our accomplishment. Right. Okay. Okay. So the answer to that is the following. The whole idea, the whole notion that when we go through states of 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 punishment or states of correction that are imposed by God, that whole notion does not in and of itself guarantee the growth and the develop of man, development of man towards his goal. Right? Let me explain what I'm saying. Right? The fact that a person does something which is negative and the way the world is programmed, there is a violent response to this negative behavior of man. Man does not grow towards the ultimate goal because when he threw sand in the engine, the engine sputtered, burned, and died. The fact that the system revolts inherently to a negative behavior does not imply qualitative growth on man's part. What it implies is, what it implies is that the negativity that is created has a limited life cycle and undergoes its own destruction. But being that the destruction of that negative was not through the choice of man, though its creation was through the choice of man, it might cleanse the person, but the person has not grown unless, together with the imposed therapy of punishment that God gives, man attaches to that motivations, feelings, and the acceptance of the therapy in, a, in an attempt to come closer to God. Let me explain what I'm saying here. Rabbi Moses Kadivero, in, in, his, in his work, the Talmud Dvarah, the palm tree of Dvarah, explains that an integral part of tshuva, an integral part of returning to God, an integral part of returning to God is confession which is a very, very complicated issue. And the, the discussion that we're going to have before Yom Kippur is, is going to deal with what confession is all about. What, are the, what is the real meaning and purpose of confession? But Rabbi Moses Kadiveru says that one of the facets of confession is that man says, owns up to the fact that he's done this, does not fool himself, admits it out loud, at least to himself, that he's done this, but that's only one part of confession. You know what the other part of confession is? 
Rabbi Moses Kadevero develops this and proves this, but he says that the other part of confession is that man stands before God and says the following, I have done these things wrong, and because I have done these things wrong, I know that I need spiritual therapy, and I accept upon myself the spiritual therapy necessary to get this out of my system. Confession means that this is not supposed to be here. This is something that's really not me, and I don't want it to be me. And I'm willing to accept upon myself what you deem necessary in spiritual therapy. This is what Cadivero says. Now, this is a phenomenal concept. I mean, the tenacity and the greatness and the courage of a Jew to be able to do that is a subject for itself. But this is what Cadivero says. Now, this is not to say that if a person doesn't accept the therapy with a willingness, that the therapy doesn't accomplish a degree of, of cleansing. But it does. In fact, the Gemara says that the nature of suffering, even without thinking in any rational or logical way, develops the soul and cleanses the soul. Like salt spices meat, Yisurim cleanses suffering cleanses the neshama. But obviously, when we're talking about a relationship with God, when we're talking about growing towards God, when we're talking about the real levels of growth, those things only happen through the choices of man. They do not happen through the imposed programs of therapy. So therefore, in response to your question, God has the program to revolt against sand in the engine, which keeps, hopefully, at least keeps the opportunity of using the engine. But after everything is said and done, it's our choice to then turn on the ignition so that the engine should run. So the concept of punishment or God's response or the concept of therapy does affect the cleansing but not necessarily growth. The growth part of it comes when man is in concert with the therapy, when there's a Kabbalah, when there's an acceptance of the therapy. Do with me what's necessary. We turn to God and we say, do a therapy, but make the therapy tolerable. Make the therapy one that doesn't take away from me all of the other forms within which I can grow. If the therapy is too severe, I will not be able to live a spiritually productive life and grow in the ways that I would like to grow. The therapy can be debilitating. It's a therapy. And it can cleanse. But I, I'm not necessarily able to do positive spiritual growth because I'm just too sick to do positive spiritual growth. So we turn to God and we say we're willing to accept it. We're willing to accept it. But please make it with Rachman, make it with compassion. And I might point out that the critical, the critical factor that makes God, so to speak, respond with compassion and make therapy bearable is directly related to the courage of man accepting the therapy. To the extent that man accepts the therapy with courage, with, with trust and belief in Hashem, God sweetens the din. God puts a sweetness in the din. This Kabbalistically is referred to as mitokadin, the sweetness that can be interlaced into din. Who accomplishes mitokadin? Man does. 
man accomplishes the mituk, the sweet interlace into, into therapy by his accepting the therapy with a positive attitude. This, in fact, more than anything else, accomplishes the mituk. Sometimes the mituk is accomplished because we, we merit it, because we, we do so much for others, and we're living for others. And that schus of living for others sometimes accomplishes the mituk adin. There are various things that do, but one of the primary things is the acceptance of the therapy. I mean, I'll tell you the words of Kadivero, okay? They're shocking words. They're great words. And we're not on the levels to really live by those words. But the way that Kadivero says it without pulling any punches is, Mekabal es hadin besever panim yafos. He accepts the therapy with a smile on his face. I, I mean, the extent of that is great. And, and we're not there. None of us are there. I don't think so. Certainly I'm not there. But, but the attitude is, is, is maximizing the benefit of the therapy by being connected to the Balha therapy, to be connected to the one that's administering the therapy. There was a hand that went up. Yes. Okay. The point that you're raising, I'm going to repeat what he said because it's it's very worthwhile to repeat. Um, it's an excellent point. It's an excellent point. Sometimes a person is at such a point that he needs a certain amount of therapy to purify the system enough to be sensitive to the whole issue of acceptance of therapy. That happens to be an excellent point. It's an excellent point and it's a very true point. It's a very true point. It's, it's a tragic place to be, uh, to have to go through that kind of a cycle, to have to go through that kind of a cycle, but uh, it, it's quite true sometimes. Uh, you, excuse me? Does who imply? The concept of the therapy? The concept of the therapy as the first place. I mean, the first part of tube is always to admit the Fed. If you don't admit the Fed, you recognize that you did the Fed, then you can't... Okay. Maimonides does, and I'll tell you where. I'm glad that you asked the question because you got me to talk about something that's important. <laughs> There's, in the beginning of the laws of Tainus, Maimonides says, the beginning of the laws of fasting, and Maimonides says the following thing. Maimonides says that fasting is midarke hachuva. It is from the paths of repentance to fast. Why? So Maimonides says something which is very interesting. Maimonides says it's not because by inflicting upon yourself the pain of hunger, I'm doing something spiritual for myself. That's not what Maimonides says. Maimonides says 
that fasting is from the paths of repentance. Why? Because more than anything else, it's an ultimate statement of belief that the condition that I am now in, that I'm suffering, that I am now suffering, not the fasting. I'll explain in a moment. Maimonides says the following thing. Let me start from the beginning so I don't confuse anybody. Maimonides says the following thing. Maimonides says that when uh, an evil decree comes upon a person or upon us as a people, one of the things that we did is we blew the shofar and we fasted. So Maimonides says, why did we fast and blow the shofar? Because this is from the ways of repentance. So Maimonides continues and says, why is fasting from the ways of repentance? So Maimonides says it's because by responding to the, to the crisis with, with fasting and introspection, what the person is doing is he's making a major statement. He's saying that his belief is that the crisis that he is in now is directly related to his, his spiritual condition and his past spiritual behavior or lack of it. The fact that man makes a statement that the crisis that I'm in is something that God knows about and has brought to me for a purpose and for a reason is in and of itself dark ehachuva, is the path of repentance. And the very fact that I go out and fast and blow shofar and pray to God more than what the prayer is and more than what the fasting is, the significance lies in the fact that I have made a connection between the crisis and the fact that something in my life is not in order and that God is a major player in bringing this crisis to effect a change. The fact that I make that statement is Darke HaTshuva. This is the path of Tshuva. Now, Maimonides continues and Maimonides says, and what happens if a person says, it's history, that's the way the cookie crumbles, the economic, sociological, geographical, political conditions created this crisis. Nikra Nikres, it happens just to be a happening of history. To, to, uh, to become cliche about it as the world turns. So Maimonides says, a person that does this, Maimonides says two things. Maimonides says, number one, Zederech Achzarius. He is being a cruel person to himself. That's one thing that Maimonides says. And number two, he brings upon himself even a greater wrath because he rejected God's communication. This is what the two things that Maimonides says. Now, let me put this all into perspective. First of all, what we have to understand in Maimonides is why does Maimonides call this person a cruel person? If there is in the reality a connection between my internal spiritual condition and the crisis, and I don't see it, I'm, I'm confused, maybe I'm stupid, maybe I'm ignorant, but why am I cruel? Where does cruelty get into the picture? That's number one. Number two, number two, Maimonides quotes a particular thing. Maimonides is quoting the curses at the end of Leviticus. At the end of Leviticus, it says that if we do things wrong, God will bring punishments. And if we reject the punishments as happenings, God will say, ah, happenings, I'll give you more happenings. And if you'll reject those, I'll give you even more happenings. So he's quoting the curses in the, the punishments of Leviticus. 
They happen to be a whole other set of punishments at the end of Deuteronomy. In fact, in this upcoming week's reading, right, there the Torah does not talk about the wrath of God, does not talk about happenings, just talks about punishments and punishments and punishments. Now, why does Maimonides quote the punishments of Leviticus and not the punishments that we're going to read this week? Why? So the Al-Sheikh HaKadosh, one of the commentaries, says a phenomenal answer. He says there's two kinds of punishments. There are the kinds of punishments which you were referring to. I don't know your name. Yehuda? That you were talking about. Where God is getting the process of realization started. We're not even talking about the real therapy. We're talking about waking up the person to realize that he needs therapy. It's tapping the person on the shoulder and saying to him, wake up. Those are the, that's what's described at the end of Leviticus. When God is coming to a person and says, wake up, and the person says, I'd rather sleep, this creates a great annoyance on God's part. I'm trying to wake you up, and you're turning over and going under your pillow back to sleep. This annoys God. Wake up! The house is burning down. And you're saying, no problem, I, need an- I have to catch another couple of sh- minutes of shut-eye. Right? This, this annoys God. Right? The therapy, and that's why it's talked about in, in terms of annoyance and wrath. The therapy, the punishments at the end of, of Deuteronomy are not the ones of waking up. The person is awake already. The person's awake already. And now, since the person is already awake, all of that which comes to him is already a therapy. It's already a purification process. So Maimonides says very eloquently, if the person, the faster the person wakes up, the quicker the therapy begins. Because if a person remains asleep through all of the waking up signs, so he suffers and he hasn't woken up. So the real, the real growth doesn't really even begin. There's a certain amount that he cleanses himself regardless. But the real growth hasn't even begun. If I would have woken up the first moment I got tapped on my shoulders, all of the subsequent punishment would have already been therapy. Now what, all, what is it all? A waste. That's cruelty. You're being cruel to yourself. You're going through all of that suffering. If you would have been willing to wake up and to accept it, all of the subsequent would have already been therapy. It would have already been in the growth process. Being that you were stubborn and you didn't wake up, so I'm banging you and banging you and banging you and you're not growing yet. That's more than stupid. That's cruel. You're being cruel to yourself. So Maimonides does speak very eloquently about both those points. Okay, we'll stop here.